And thank you all for being here today on this Labor Day weekend. And thanks to Kim Duncan for his important and impressive gratitude moment. And uh, I appreciate all the folk who serve here and help us take care of each other and help us to care for this community. And thank you for all you do in that regard. Hope it's been a good weekend for you. I hope the first full Saturday of college football hasn't upset you too bad. I can say in all honesty that my team did not lose yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, it's early and, uh, and we're going to have a great time with it. We're going to have a lot of fun. And I uh, hope you don't take it so seriously that it really keeps you up at night. But uh, it, is a, it is a lot of fun. It's a great time of year. And it's uh, good to see things kind of getting back in a pattern in the swing here with the the end of summer, the unofficial end of summer, and some, some great days to come. We've got a great fall planned here. Vince outlined some of the things for you. Got a lot of other great things going on as well. So uh, hope to see you around here and around the community often. Our scripture lesson for today as we continue this Take a Letter series is from Ephesians 2 beginning with verse 11. And once again, I would like to read from Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. Uh, I use this from time to time. It seems to have fit in well with this particular series of sermons. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this. Didn't know the first thing about the way God works. Hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we're now together on this both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He is using us all, irrespective of how we got here and what he is building. He used the apostles and prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all the parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quiet at home. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. When we began this Take a Letter series back, I think mid-July sometime, we focused on 2 Corinthians, which was a letter written to a particular people in a particular place to address some particular issues. Before we closely examine the passage for this week, which is from Ephesians, we've moved into the book of Ephesians, I want to spend a little time together looking at this letter or this book of the New Testament, the background just a little bit. In powerful and poetic language, we are drawn in. And the language is so beautiful because a lot of it, we think, was taken from early Christian liturgies and early Christian hymns and incorporated into the body of of this letter. The letter to the Ephesians celebrates the church, a unique community of faith established by God through the work of Jesus Christ, who is the head not only of the church, but of the whole of creation. The church was established by God's eternal purpose. We forget that sometimes, don't we? And in it, believers already live in a union with God through Christ, and the Holy Spirit anticipates full union in the life to come. Reconciliation to God through the death of Christ has broken the power of sin and evil specifically. The long-standing separation between Jews and non-Jews is addressed here throughout the New Testament. Paul's own dignity and vocation as an apostle, a sent one, or advertised the apostleship not only to the Gentiles, which he was very upfront about. I've come to take the good news of Jesus to those who are outside the children of Israel. But all of his talk about the stewardship of the mystery of the gospel and how all that was finally revealed and made known through Jesus the Christ. The concluding ethical exhortation stresses unity in the church, love as an imitation of God, and separation from impurity. The well-known concluding passage about putting on the armor of God, it concludes the letter to the Ephesians. We didn't read about all that today. That reminds us that evil will be vanquished and already has been by good. Now, some early manuscripts of this that we find there's no reference directly to Ephesus or to the Ephesians. Second Corinthians, other letters were written to particular people in particular places. This is more what many scholars call a circular letter. It was sent to one place. It had to start somewhere. But then it was passed on to this church and this and this, to one congregation and then another and then another. And so it was more general in some ways and not addressed to particular problems as much as some of the the other letters. There's also the question of the authorship of this letter. Many scholars believe it's one of Paul's letters, a Pauline epistle, so to speak. Others believe that it was written by someone else, perhaps in Paul's name, and Paul's influence was there. We'll talk about that some, maybe at another time, and what some of the reasons are for these questions. But right now, for our purposes today, I'm going with the assumption that these are are Paul's words. I know there are other views, and I respect that. So zeroing in on today's passage, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, by the time that this was written, Gentiles, and the word Gentile, we hear it a lot in the New Testament, it means outsiders, those outside the children of Israel. It literally means the nations, 
the nations that are outside of Israel. Sometimes it's translated in harsh terms and it's referred to, the Gentiles are referred to as the pagans. But I think they're, for our vernacular, there are better ways to, to express that. And so being pulled together and drawn together and that's so much of what this is about. And um, again, we'll go into all those details, but by the time the passage was written, the Gentiles had become full-fledged people of God. It had been a titanic struggle, as the letters of Paul indicate. One of those issues that, that just wouldn't go away. It was the most significant controversy in the church in the first few decades of its existence. As the book of Acts finally shows, foregone conclusion that Gentiles would be admitted to the church and would enjoy equal status with the Jewish folk and, and others. So one of the most prominent Jewish Christians, Peter, we all know about Peter, Peter found that difficult to accept. There's some amazing stories in Acts about how Peter was to go and visit in the home of Cornelius, the, uh, was it Cornelius the, the Gentile, the sheet came down with all the unclean foods on it. And you remember how Peter struggled with all of that so mightily about how others could possibly be, be drawn in, how these outsiders could become insiders, how they could become fellow heirs, members of the body of Christ, all through the gospel. The passage begins. It talks about the changed status of the Gentiles. It talks about the condition in starkly hopeless terms. By the insiders, folks were considered, others were considered outsiders. And it reminds us of how racial and ethnic struggles often degenerate to the level of hurling insults and cliches at one another that are designed to exclude or to belittle other people. The metaphor is chosen here. There's a cold kind of distance to them. Didn't know one thing about the way God works. They didn't. Didn't have the faintest or foggiest notion about Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's promises and the covenant and the promises to Israel. Hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. That's a hard way to talk about folks. And that's some, some kind of put down language. These unkind remarks reflect the perspective of those on the inside. But Jews knew only too well what it meant to be strangers and sojourners when they stopped to think about it. What we have here is an apt summary of life as viewed through the eyes of the Jews who saw themselves as the elect of God back at that particular time. It's the life of the disenfranchised and the desolate. Do these people belong? Can they be covered by the grace of God? In sharp contrast, then, their new life in Christ is pictured. The passage is built on two contrasting phrases, as you once were, as you now are. A great, great contrast. You once were like this, now you're like this. And it's been suggested that many of the early Christian sermons were developed along this line and enforced by this theme. What the Gentiles formerly lacked, they now enjoyed and they appreciated. They were part of the group. They were part of the circle. They were fellow citizens with the saints and they were members of the household of God. And thank God for that. Or I don't know where we would be this day. You were out of it altogether. Now you're in on everything. Another feature of the passage and the way the work of Christ is depicted, the work of bringing the Gentiles, the unity of the Gentiles and the Jews, because of what Christ has done to help eradicate the divisions in humanity that still play out 
But the power of Christ is still there. The death of Christ is seen as the occasion in which all these things were brought to a new place. A place of unity. Those people far off were brought quite near. And Christ is said to be our peace. And so we seek that peace. We work to make that peace among folk who, who are differences, who have differences. Our passage then states that Christ tore down the wall that we use to keep one another at a distance. And I want to come back to that in just a moment for just a short time. The work of Christ is further defined as creating a new kind of human being. It's a fresh start for everybody. And we talk about that sometimes. We forget that at the heart and the core of our faith, Jesus Christ can change a human heart and change a human life. And we quickly give up on ourselves or on others. The body of Christ, the single corporate entity in which to all have been fused and all brought together. The picture in today's passage from the letter to the Ephesians remains a great ideal, doesn't it? Although the first century church resolved in many ways the Jewish-Gentile controversy, in one sense, in another sense it's never been resolved, issues of inclusiveness and exclusiveness, insiders and outsiders, whether we base that on race or social station or gender, they still remain unresolved within the people of God. The ideal of a new humanity in Christ calls for proclamation, calls for us to make that known, peace and reconciliation. Both should be carried out in the hope that hostilities will be brought to an end. And the passage we read reminds us, verse 16, Christ brought us together through his death on the cross, something that matters more than anything else that might harm us or divide us. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility, the writer says. Now back to verse 14 for just a few minutes. Of all torn down. That's the phrase that was used here. A portion of the passage reads like this. He, Jesus, tore down the wall that we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Might be a good time for us all to look into our own hearts. I know I need to do this. But doesn't our faith become sometimes so many rules and regulations and footnotes and fine print that we get so tangled up in all those weeds that we miss the point of it all and we don't understand the grace of God. There's more to it than that. More to it than just keeping the rules, so to speak. A common illustration of the image of the wall was in the Jewish temple, the wall or the railing that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. There have always been those kind of walls and divisions. No person, it had a warning inscription on the wall and it read, no person of another race is to enter within the wall and this enclosure around the temple. It served to remind the non-Jews that they had to keep distance from the sacred shrine. That barrier, that wall, verse 14 declares, has been broken down. 
and torn down in the sense that access to God is no longer restricted to one particular group and a particular set of observances and rules and regulations. Walls have always been big deals in history. They've shaped history. They've shaped civilization as we know it. Some walls are designed for protection and others are designed for separation. Some walls are functional and others are purely decorative. They would not even be able to, one writer said, some walls are just pretty to look at. They wouldn't even contain a frightened cat. Walls and fences serve similar functions, but I think a fence is being a little less than a wall. And a fence sometimes provides visual access. And a wall I think of as blocking all access, including line of sight. In biblical time, walled cities were preferred places to live. Walls provided a certain measure of protection and security for those well-to-do folk who lived within the walls and others lived outside the walls. Walled cities were known as mother cities. And the villages and towns on the outside of the wall were referred to as daughter cities. They were on the outskirts of the mother city. And that's where the poor folk lived. And you remember when Jesus was nearing his death and he referred to the daughters of Jerusalem, he was not talking about individual women so much as he was talking about these daughter villages that were on the outside of the mother city, on the outskirts, where the poor and the vulnerable lived without protection. More than once in the Bible, walls are destroyed. There is that magnificent story that you learned, many learned in Sunday school about Jericho. March around the city seven times, blow the trumpet, the walls came tumbling down. Insiders, outsiders, physical walls were often the dividing lines in that day. But not just in biblical account that walls were significant. What about the Great Wall of China? And I read just a little bit about that. And some of you I know have seen it, have been there. It was built by several Chinese empires from the 3rd century B.C. through the 17th century to protect the country's northern border against Mongolian troops and other potential invaders. The length of over 13,000 miles stretches across 15 provinces. Different sections of the walls stood 23 to 26 feet high. Many were 21 feet wide at the base and 19 feet at the top. Just talk about a wall. Materials to use the wall ranged from sticks and mud to adobe bricks and stone mixtures and rocks. The wall, or what remains of it, was built as a source of protection, and now the wall itself needs protecting. Another famous wall, the Berlin Wall, constructed in 1961. And many of us remember and hear the words repeated from time to time, June the 12th, 1987. Then President Ronald Reagan said in a speech, he declared, Mr. Gorbachev, tear that wall down. But truth be known, I believe that most walls that are built in this world are not physical walls that we can see and that we can touch. They are invisible walls that are still very real and very effective. And goodness gracious, don't most folks know when they've run into one of those walls? I think about the last house, the parsonage that Mickey and I lived in, and the glass back door, screen door, so it's all glass covering. And how we would hear that thud, thud, thud sound from time to time as birds flew into the glass. And you would see the, 
the feathers and the other parts of the bird stuck on the glass and uh, grew up, I didn't grow up, my mother and dad moved into a house after I had grown up that had one of those sliding glass doors across the back out onto the, out onto the deck. And my dad finally started putting decals and hanging little things on that glass so he wouldn't have to keep getting the Windex out and wiping off the nose smudges and the lip smudges on the glass where his brilliant and beautiful children kept running into it. So, Have you ever run into an invisible wall? Have you witnessed the stunned, you ever witnessed the stunned or discouraged look on the face of someone who has run into an invisible wall? Invisible walls, we, we build and we construct and we put them up to protect us from different ideas and different realities and different people. The driving force that leads to the construction of such walls is, in my way of thinking, always fear. It's the same motivation that causes physical walls to be built, protecting the insiders and discouraging the outsiders. Gated neighborhoods, security fences, high walls, literally and figuratively. Do these walls protect or do they imprison? We've all heard the expression about the church needing to reach out beyond the four walls, and certainly that's true. And we have way more than four walls here. I don't know if anybody's ever counted them. But we're called to love the world that God loves. But we need our time within the walls for rest and renewal and encouragement and just to have our batteries recharged. And we must exercise great care that literally and figuratively we provide access, doors and gates and ways for folk to get in. And we must be even more careful about putting up invisible walls and every organization does it, but we're guilty in the church sometimes. We put up invisible walls that confine us sometimes and confound those who would be a part of who we are. There's an image of Jesus I'd never considered before until recently, and some of you will be familiar with this. I call it the the Bob the Builder look. Jesus operating a piece of heavy equipment, a crane-like piece of equipment, and on the front of the crane, hanging from a chain, is a wrecking ball. The writer of the letter to the Ephesians reminds us He tore down the walls that we build to keep each other at a distance. Amen.